Drive is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Georgie Gardner and welcome to Drive, a future women podcast about women on their way. This episode is brought to you by Uber Eats, where safety is a top priority. From ongoing delivery partner education programs to contactless delivery, safety never stops. Each week, I speak to accomplished and interesting women about their enviable careers, as well as how they manage to make time and space for themselves. From work and life advice to travel and wellness tips, I find out what engages them and, where possible, pass on their shortcuts. I'm a huge consumer of music. I have it on all the time. That is when I'm, of course, not listening to podcasts. I listen in the car, I listen around the house, while out walking, even sometimes as I drift off to sleep. One of the most cherished presents from my husband in recent years was a record player. And I am one of those people who actually still has records from my teenage years, and I'd love nothing more than to crank them up. A number of them are scratched, which actually just adds to the nostalgia. And My taste in music is broad. It varies from Vivaldi to the Violent Femmes. Don't judge me, I grew up in the 80s. But equally, I I love listening to current stuff. And with teenagers in the house, I am exposed to a lot of rap, a bit of hip hop, and every now and then remixes of songs from my era. And I've got to say, nothing amuses me more than the shock and horror on my kids' faces when I know the lyrics to a song that they think they've just unearthed. It's very funny. Going to a live concert was the highlight of my year as a teenager, and it's not lost on me that the art sector has been one of the hardest hit by COVID. Musicians, actors, artists, writers, dancers, an entire creative industry has been pretty much brought to its knees, and it's devastating to think of the financial and mental impact the pandemic has had on these individuals and businesses. Yet, the creative spark in the arts sector still burns bright. It has to. These are creative people who know nothing else but to keep on creating. And we as consumers must show our support in any way possible. And that begins with opting to pay when we can as they bring their craft to us virtually. My guest today is a true creative in every aspect of her life, from preparing a meal to directing a storyline in Neighbours to founding two child advocacy organisations. She's an absolute dynamo. And while she can't travel freely right now, she continues to find ways to be creative in this new look world. Deborah Lee Finesse, welcome to Drive. Thanks, Georgie. Good to be with you. Deb, we're living in very strange times with this COVID pandemic. How are you? What has life been like in New York? I was directing Neighbours when this all broke out. I was in Australia. I had one day to go on my stint down there. 
and he would come down with the kids to have a you know holiday and we were going to go around Australia and literally production shut down and we had to race back to the epicenter of the, of the COVID virus. So, you know, we sort of rushed, got home and then we just stopped still. It's been such a surreal time. I mean, when it happened, I thought, oh, this is going to last two weeks. It's been five months. I think it's like anything, there's such great positives and there's such great negatives. Obviously, my heart goes out to the people that this impacts either their health or mental health, people with jobs. I feel like it's Mother Nature, you know, saying, stop, guys, you're going too fast. The environment, the way we're going about life. I mean, I know so many people that I talk to have said, you know, I've refound my family. I've heard that over and over again. People who were so busy with work are having to be home now and they've reconnected with their children. They're realising they don't need as much material things in the world and the simplicity of life is coming back again. And also, as humans, we, we are coming together to help the people that are not faring well. You know, we're very conscious. My kids are volunteering at um, farms to get food out to people that need it. And it makes us all step up and come together in unity. So there's a lot of positives, but as of course, there's great tragedy and drama too. The bottom line is it's given us enormous perspective, hasn't it? And it's given us time. Yeah, which we never have. Hey, I live in New York. Time is the most valuable thing. It's like no matter who you are, you're always busy in New York and we've just had to stop. And it's very challenging, especially like you think of New York as they're like A-type personalities. You don't come here unless you've got something to do. And I think it's been very challenging for people who are always go, go, go just to stop. You know, we've always got a plan. I'm going here, then I'm doing this. There's no plan. There's no nothing. You can't make a plan. You can only be in this present moment, which I always say that's the answer to happiness. Because if you're not in the present moment, your head's back in the past or you're worried about the future. So there's a stress in that. If you just sit right here, right now, everything's going to come to you right here. So it's taken me back to that. And that uncertainty is just so unsettling, isn't it? I'm wondering how you're dealing with that and what you're taking from this period. I'm a little bit of an optimist. I'm always like... You're a big bit of an optimist. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like pragmatic to him like this is the situation I mean I feel blessed we're in a situation we don't have to worry that we haven't got food to eat we're in a very fortunate position but I am utilizing this moment to really do all the stuff that we never have time to do I mean you would laugh I'm like studying Kabbalah which is uh, Hebrew mysticism I'm learning Italian and my Italian teachers in Milan which you can do now because you can (laughs) zoom is atto And my art teacher lives in Seattle, so she's zooming in to do that. And I'm sort of doing these classes, Hugh and I literally, and and I think what we need to do is so unnerving when you don't have a, a structure, like most people get up, they have breakfast, they walk the dog, whatever, they go to work. And when you don't have that, it can throw you off and you can get a bit lost. So as soon as this happened, we created a ritual and structure for the day. And we literally get up and read together every morning for half an hour. So we read something that of substance, so it sets you up for the day, we have a bit of a debate, we do meditation, we walk the dogs, we work out, and then we start our day. It just gives you a structure to hold on. And we're actors, we're used to getting call sheets and being told what to do. We need that. So, And I think most people do need some sort of structure. So we, yeah, we're making the most of it. And also, my son's working on an organic farm, he was lucky to get a job, so he's doing that and he's also doing some other work. So he's good. 
You touched on meditation. I read somewhere that you were an earlier adopter of transcendental meditation. Is that still your go-to and how often do you practice? We do it every morning. And, you know, I sort of started doing that because we got a teacher in for our son when he was younger because he was all over the shop. The teacher has become one of our dear, dear friends. So he's always checking in with us and making sure we're on track. And it's true, all the data is there. I mean, if you speak to Bob Roth, who is the head of the David Lynch Foundation, the amount of prime that went down in Chicago, the amount of students that did better in school when they brought it into the schools, he brings it to war veterans who've had PTSD. And the data is there that it completely calms the nervous system and calms down. You know, and I'm, as you can see, I'm like, I think too fast. I do everything too fast. So for me... It's very challenging, but I make myself sit every morning and do it. Deb, I had the great pleasure of interviewing you almost two years ago to the day. You were a guest on the Today Show and you talked with great passion about Adopt Change. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with Adopt Change, it's an organisation you started, well, I think about 12 years ago to support and advocate for vulnerable children. The aim is to provide resources and support to either the families of those at-risk kids or their carers or guardians to ensure they have access to a safe, nurturing and stable family environment. When we chatted, you said the biggest problem was that these children were experiencing too many placements, that there wasn't enough permanency. Is that still the case? It's still the case the world over. And that's the biggest thing we have to address. I mean, there's there was one guy who had 60 placements. Can you imagine what it's like for a child that you're always showing up with your little bag, you're the new kid, there's strangers there, and you never feel like you belong and you never feel like you're important. J.K. Rowling has an organisation called Lumos where they're trying to shut down all the orphanages. All the science is in, all the data is in that children don't thrive mentally, physically, cognitively, emotionally in orphanages and they have ongoing trauma, attachment disorders. So... That's the facts. So the world has to, we have to, through civil society, through our politicians, we have to address this or else there's going to be a huge society of dysfunctional people that are not going to contribute to society. It's going to be very problematic for us all. And my big thing with foster care, it should always only be an interim. Children belong in permanent loving families. And the outreach that Renee Carter, who's the CEO of Adopt Change, is always trying to secure new foster carers, and eventually we want children to have permanency, not to be transitional, and to have a capper on the time that they are in foster care. So, you know, all my outreach, I have Hopeland in America, which is addressing the bigger issue of why there's so many children. So we address poverty. We have a program that is giving direct cash transfers to people in extreme poverty so they don't have to relinquish their children to orphanages. And there has to be a support system in place, always. If we're to do adoption in Australia, there has to be support for the adoptee, the carers, that everyone is supported so that we can do it well. And that's why we failed in the past. There was no support. It was badly run. That's how I started. It was like I just looked at it. This There was an anti-adoption culture, which Bromham Bishop did in an inquiry. Mm. And I was like, what? I, I didn't understand it. And it came out of, you know, I think women were not served that, in the 40s through the 70s that had to relinquish their babies because of the culture of the time and they were shamed and never given support. The kids were taken from them. They were not informed a lot of the time because there was shame around adoption. We had to change the whole stigma around adoption so that this is a kid's journey, support them. 
we also need to step up. Everyone can do something. Well, you've been so remarkable, I think, in, in just talking about it, as you say, breaking down those stigmas, raising awareness. And that can't have been easy initially. I mean, that obviously, well, I'm assuming that came about because of you adopting your own children. But that was showing, I think, great courage and vulnerability by being so public about it. It was, because trust me, I didn't step out to do this. People would come up to me because, you know, they knew we had adopted children. They'd say, I'd love to, but we can't. And I was just, I hate injustice. And I'd, I'd travelled all over the world. I'd seen kids that would benefit from this. And I never set out to be an advocate. That's not sort of really who I am. But I sort of reached out and sort of tried to just add my two bobs worth. And just by talking about it, I thought it will get attention. I thought the people in the community would take over. But I got so much pushback. I cannot tell you. Uh, from so many people, I, I got pummeled. Like I think whenever you stick your neck out, mm. you run the risk of the other side. And I had a lot of the anti-adoption people really come at me and I had to sit and think about it and go, am I doing the right thing? And I did all my work and I looked at it and I thought, no, mm. these children need a home. And, I, and then I just kept going. And, yeah, it was scary because I had to make myself really look at the history and study it. The scariest thing I ever did was I went to... They asked me to go to Canberra to speak at the press gallery and give the history of adoption in Australia. <laughs> I think my knees were shaken, but I spent my entire summer reading everything I could just to be really all over the issue. And how do you feel 12 or so years on? Do you feel like you're making inroads? I mean, there's still obviously those major sticking points with the permanency issue. Yeah. But at least we're talking about it, Deb. Oh, it was brought out of a closet. Exactly. It wasn't even out of the closet. It was so buried. Mm. And if anything has to work, it's got to have energy, creative thinking. It's like anything. If you don't put that in, nothing's going to shift. But yeah, I realise in politics, and I'm not a politician, but oh my God, it's like you realise how long. I'm one of those people I want to happen yesterday. <laughs> this has taken so long. I've been through so many prime ministers. And even the prime ministers that were on our side said to me, it's so hard to ship because the system was so bogged down in bureaucracy. And it's ridiculous how much bureaucracy there is. The reality, however, is that I've always believed children are the best barometer of how we're tracking as a society. I always say that. How we treat our most vulnerable citizens says so much about us. It was a masterstroke, I thought, to incorporate this issue into an episode of the TV show Neighbours. Just tell us about how that came about because, again, that's putting it out there. It's normalising it. It's getting people talking. Yes, exactly. Well, Jason, who's the producer on Neighbours, contacted me. He actually has an adopted child. And I love, can I say, you know, everyone says, oh, Neighbours, it's a soap opera. Yeah, it is. But guess what? It's bringing so many issues. They're not like they've got a trans character. They're like addressing LGBTQ. I know they're trying to have diversity with the casting. They're really putting the issues in the show. And he has an adopted child and he reached out to me and he knew that I wanted to be a director when I grew up. So we met and we talked about it and he said, would you direct? And I mean, I couldn't go down for a long time, but I said, yes. So I, I directed a block of it and I absolutely loved it. I love working with the actors and Adopt Change, our team at Adopt Change and myself nuanced all the storyline. Because you're doing it through characters that people know and love, they get to understand it. It's not this foreign concept of, someone else or some mm. other thing you get to understand you know the child's journey so yeah it was thrilling for me to do it through art a lot of my work that I want to say something I do through art because people don't want to be hit over the head with mm. issues whatever and I think if you do it from the heart and you interpret through art it reaches people they understand 
Well, you are an incredibly creative person. You're an incredibly accomplished person as an actor, director, producer, and as we've just talked about, a children's rights activist. And yet I read somewhere you saying, and you just touched on it then, I'm still deciding what I'm going to be when I grow up. (laughs) (laughs) And I hope I keep changing. I hope I do. I'm writing a script at the moment. I'm trying trying to write a screenplay because I do want to direct. But I'm like, I'm painting too. I'm I'm doing these big life-size paintings. I'm sculpting. As long as I'm being creative, I feel like I'm, as long as I'm learning, I just feel full. Yeah. It makes me happy. I've heard Hugh saying you live life to the full every single day. Where does that drive come from and how do you sustain it? (laughs) Where does it come from? Well, what's the alternative? (laughs) The alternative is just not a whole lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah, I probably have a little too much fun. I'll I'll be there having the at the buffet eating the ice cream when I should be. Hallelujah. Um, yeah, exactly. I think the kid inside me is still alive and I just like to play. How fabulous. How fabulous. <laughs> what career or life advice have you found to be useful and realistic that you can possibly share with our listeners? I know that's a big question, but does anything come to mind? No, I always say to people, like my son's an artist, he's very gifted. But somehow through society, he thinks, oh, it's not a proper job. I always say to people, that's how you're going to find your roadmap to what you're doing. I mean, who wants to do a job, you know, just because they're supposed to, they should, they should make a living, whatever. Well, they should follow their bliss, follow their passion, find out what you're interested in and pursue that path. And if the young kids coming out of who are just starting in college, a lot of times they don't know what they want to do. That's why I say to my kids, try this, try tennis. I'm annoying apparently. Try tennis, try surfing, try the bagpipes, try whatever because you don't know. And at that age it's a smorgasbord and I think you've got to try it on. I started, uh, that's right, I wanted to be an actress and then my mother, of course, said first thing, well, you, well, you have to get do a secretarial course just in case. So anyway, so I, I did that but who knew? I didn't know if I could act. I was sort of like, well, I'll give it a go. And we as Australians give it a go. Mm. I think what kills me the most is, and what I would say to people is, don't let fear stand in the way of a dream. Mm. And that's about confidence and that's about our self-worth and everyone battles with their self-worth and trusting themselves. And we always feel like, oh, it's just us. It's everyone. It's everyone. Every day. Oh, am I going to be good at that? Like lately I was reading uh, The War of Art, I think. It's a great read by Stephen Pressfield for artists. And he says, you've just got to just do the movements just to go through it so that you can get it. One line in that, which just, it stuck with me when he talks about the fear in, in, for the artist. He said it was easier for Hitler to strike the Second World War than it was to stare at a blank canvas. Mm. Because as an artist or creativity, it's yourself you're putting out there. Mm. It's like we're so fearful to show ourselves so many artists, when there's a blank canvas, where do you start? They can't start. They're crippled or anyone that wants to do something. And what I say to that is just accept the fear. Mm. Fear is going to be there. Insecurity is going to be there. Just put one step in front of the other and go for it. Feel the fear and do it anyway. Yeah, exactly. It's an old, is that a Nike slogan? I don't know. Well, it was a book I remember reading in, in my late teens. Oh, yeah, okay. And it was a bit of a breakthrough moment for me because you're right, we run away from fear but as soon as you're encouraged to feel it and do it anyway, you come out the other end and you go, oh, hang on a second. And it's great and it dissipates. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 
We're going to take a quick break now and we'll be right back after this message from our partner, Uber Eats. Uber Eats is the perfect companion for Aussies on the go. They're for you at home, at work or on holidays. Uber Eats has more than 20,000 restaurants offering fresh and delicious meals at the click of a button. Thanks to Uber Rewards, more than a million Australians are already earning loyalty points on every order on Uber Eats. Download Uber Eats from the App Store and celebrate local restaurants today or explore the new grocery option to get your essentials without visiting the supermarket. Uber Eats, connecting what matters. Future Women is dedicated to helping women connect, learn and lead. There's a price point to suit most budgets or talk to your company about a corporate training membership to advance your professional development. Just head to futurewomen.com. Welcome back to Drive, where my guest today is Deborah Lee Finesse. So you touch on your beautiful children, Oscar 20, Ava 15. What has motherhood meant to you, Deb? They're obviously at really formative ages and it must be so joyous to see them becoming young adults, or they are young adults, and going out into the world. I get the feeling you're incredibly proud of them. It's everything. I mean, my God, there's no other greater teacher than your kids and they know your Achilles heel and they push you and they charge you and they're annoying and they're gorgeous and adorable and pains in the asses. <laughs> the but whole gamut. The whole gamut, yeah, like how are the kids? I go, pick an adjective. Um, <laughs> but literally, like Ava's just turned 15, so she's just gone from that little girl and I look at this young woman who's so opinionated and wants to make a difference in the world and she's now in that stage of not knowing what she wants to do and I love sort of like playing, going with her, well, what are, you know, what about this, what about that? It's so full of possibility and excitement. You know, I feel I, my heart breaks for her because, like, she's about to go back into her 10th year of school, but she's going to be online. This is such an important time for these kids socially and to connect and learn all those social skills, and they're all sitting on their computers, and that sort of breaks my heart for her. Mm. And Oscar, too, you know, he's 20. You know, at 20 you think you know everything. I can't tell him anything, and... He's, you know, king of the world. So that's an exciting age too. But, you know, he's still my baby. (laughs) Mm, Always will be. How do they cope with having famous parents? I mean, you're both incredibly down to earth and grounded, but has it been challenging for them at times to share you with the public, do you think? Yeah, especially when my son was young. It was very hard when he'd want to go out for a walk with dad and everyone would keep pulling him away to get a Wolverine selfie or something. Mm. He struggled with that. But I always made like the paparazzi is part of our life and I always were like, there's the trees and there's the paparazzi. That's just who it is. I didn't ever, I never vilified them. It was just like this comes with the territory. Mm-hmm. And also I think they have to develop an instinct in the world that their friends want to be friends with them for who they are. And they're both very good at knowing who wants to take advantage of playing with Wolverine's kid or whatever. But, yeah, the, the fame, you know, they're sort of amused by it. There's, I don't think it really impacts them. They just know the reality. But that says a lot about you as parents. You've kept them grounded. You've kept it all in perspective. Yeah, well, that's who we are. I mean, what is it? It's so silly. Fame is this bizarre reality. That's what I always said with fame. What I miss the most is, you know, when you know, Hugh and I were younger, we would travel the world and, you know, on your travels, you're backpacking around Europe, you meet people, you go, hi, who are you? How are you? You, you do the dance of getting to know someone. And we miss out on that. We now no longer get to do the dance because there's always a, a preconception who we are. 
So I sort of miss that part of it. But, hey, you know, it is part of the business and, and it's afforded us an incredible journey. We've met amazing people and travelled the world. So everything's a double-edged sword, isn't it? You do seem to have struck an enviable balance, Deborah Lee, I reckon, with satisfying your passion for social causes as well as your creativity, all while being committed to the family unit. Do you and Hugh make a concerted effort on that front to enable everyone's needs to be met? How do you make it all work? With the children, you mean? Yeah, all of you. The choices are made for the family. That's always for the family first. And Hugh or myself will not do a job if it's going to impact in any way negatively on the core four. And, you know, we're very family. We like being together. Mm. We like doing stuff together. So that's always been the priority. But it's also, you know, I want my daughter and my son to see that we're out in the world active, involved, you know, trying to make a difference at things that are not working properly. So they've witnessed that and they both feel strongly about doing things in the world. Mm. In the fickle world of show business, there's often a lot said and written about your long marriage with you. And I'm wondering if there's anything in particular that you think is key to the success of that. There seems to be an enormous respect for each other's work and causes, as well as each other's successes, which I think is a very beautiful thing about you two as a couple. Thank you. I think the key is you're going to pick the right partner. It's like we just understand each other and someone can be fabulous, but they're not right for you or they could be whatever. It's the alchemy where your positives and your negatives complement each other. And I think with Hugh and I, we've grown into we're so honest with each other, like we tell each other everything. I think trust and truth is key that you're always communicating how you feel what you're thinking so that the support's always there. We happen to feel blessed that, you know, we met each other and we click, we work. Our positives and our negatives work. Beautiful. Now, I'm intrigued by the concept of wabi-sabi. I know you're a big fan (laughs) of this. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a Japanese philosophy about, well, essentially not just accepting imperfection but embracing it. Is that right? Yes, there's imperfection. Now, there's perfection in imperfection. I was a wabi-sabiist, I think, before I even knew about it. I just built a house and my whole house is asymmetrical. I cannot stand balance. I can't stand pairs or matching things. My whole house is like up and down and asymmetrical, which is a very wabi-sabi thing, that there's perfection in the imperfection, that it's not all balanced. The basic ideology around wabi-sabi is the beauty of the present moment. And it's saying that anything can be enjoyed in that present moment. Like everyone laughs at me. Like, hey, for example, my kids, you know, like we get takeout and they're like, they just want to eat out of the box and da da I, on the other hand, will make a takeout Chinese meal look like a gourmet <laughs> restaurant experience because I'll put the fried rice in this bowl and I put the chopsticks there because I believe I, I suppose I was like, it's theatre, it's magic. I want to enjoy the experience. I don't want to just shove the, the rice down. When I was in Australia shooting, they literally would FaceTime me, all of them, and be eating out of the packet just to piss me <laughs> off. 
<laughs> wabi sabi is about being still like the Japanese tea ceremony. It's done so that you calm down, you're present with the other person, you respect the cup. That, like in Japan, they give you a cup. Every cup is hand-painted and then you have to show appreciation for the artwork of the cup. That was done when we were there with the kids when they were little and they used to like knock each other over the head. They did the Japanese tea ceremony. You had to pour the tea for each other and bow and respect each other. And I was like, the first time you ever saw it with the two of them, I'm like, this should be introduced to every school because it really does. It shows respect. It shows stopping to be in the moment and enjoying the moment. I think you can make a garbage bin beautiful. I just think stop and be in the moment and enjoy it. I love it. I love that. I think I might be a wabi-sabiist. Is that how you say it? Myself. Yeah, well, I made that up. I know it's wabi-sabi. <laughs> Let's go with it. I always buy flowers in odd numbers. I don't know because I don't want it to. See? I don't You're want a wabi-sabiist. There you go. I'm a wabi-sabiist and I didn't even know it. And I did. Um, Join the club. I did visit Japan for the first time last year and I couldn't agree more. I just, that attention to detail and savouring the moment, it was just such an eye-opener. It's quite beautiful. Now, you touched on the house. I believe that's the house in the Hamptons. I've seen it in a magazine. It looks... No, that's the guest house. Oh, that's the okay. guest house. Okay. Well, what I saw just looked so warm and welcoming. I imagine that's been a real passion project. Oh, my God. Design and space, that's my deep, deep passion. And Hugh will laugh me. I'll be sitting up looking to space and he'll, he'll go, are you designing? I'm like, yeah. I've always, I'm just constantly having ideas. But we've got the guest house at the moment. And because of COVID, obviously... Our main house, which was supposed to be ready for the summer vacation, was behind schedule. So we're staying, the four of us, in a one-bedroom guest house. Hugh and I are loving it. The kids, not so much. <laughs> it's like, so I've put a tent outside for them so they can get As away from do. us. Yeah. As you do. But designing this house, I, I did one I renovated, which was a whole different creative experience because there's boundaries. And then I did one from scratch, which is sort of overwhelming because it's sort of like you're at, at a buffet and there's just too much to choose from. But I love the process and I feel like when I finish this house, I'm going to have to find another one and flip it or something because I love doing it. And where's that? Is that in the Hamptons? In the Hamptons. We're going between the Hamptons and the city at the moment. Right. So you're able to do that now. Restrictions have lifted and you can... Oh, yeah. You know, it's summer here. So all the restaurants are open but outside and people are out on the beaches and we're sort of having gatherings, small gatherings, but it's all everything's outside, which is, you know... It's okay if you're outside, but we all have to wear a mask. Everyone's wearing a mask. Now, as part of this series, I've been asking for recommendations. Just firstly, are you a fan of podcasts? Yes. I've been listening to lots. Yeah. And have you got any that you can share with us that you've really particularly enjoyed? Well, I think Brene Brown is fabulous and any of the people she interviews in particular, the one she did with Alicia Keys was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I do you know Brene Brown? I love Brene Brown. Absolutely. Oh, she's awesome. And also Russell Brand. I know everyone said, like, Russell Brand, have you listened to any of his podcasts? No. He is fascinating, so smart, talks so fast. It's like freewheeling, just words just come, they just go. <laughs> I met him when he was in Australia. He was out there for the 16th Street uh, Acting School, which I'm patron of, and he came and spoke to all the students there. He spoke for four hours without taking a breath. All he did was eat four bananas, but it just goes. But, no, he interviews the most fascinating people and he's incredibly smart. You know, he's like an ex-addict who's just found God. He's very calm, very within himself. I also like all the Goop, not all of them, but Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow has some interesting people on. Okay. Some of them not so much, but there's a few good ones in there. And I do like Gabor Mate. 
Do you know him? No. Gabor Mate is, is a Canadian doctor and he basically deals with trauma and addiction. But what I find fascinating about him is he's like the book I'm reading at the moment on him is um, When the Body Says No. It's just basically how all our emotions, everything that happens in our life impacts us on a physiological level, which creates dis-ease. So he, he's had done all these studies about why people get certain ailments mm. and the type of people all have the same characteristics and I just found this fascinating. And the other one, the other book I was reading is It Didn't Start With You, which to me is fascinating. It's epigenetics. It's how we inherit our ancestors' stuff, how generation after generation people repeat the same either positive or negative situations. It's like it comes in in our DNA. Excellent. So a couple of book recommendations there as well. But my favourite one for artists is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. It's fantastic. Okay. A podcast you might like. Have you come across the latest Louis Theroux series? It's called Grounded. No. Look that up. Jot that down. He has interviewed quite a few very high-profile people from Helena Bonham Carter to Boy George. My favourite episode of all is with Marion Margulies. And it's just fantastic. And it's everyone in lockdown. So it's a bit like before you and I started this interview when we couldn't, you know, we were trying to get it all together and technically, and he he records all of that as well. And it's very amusing. I think you'd love it. So there's one. I love all that faux pas with all our podcasts, like kids in the background and, you know, dogs barking. I agree. It's the best. Life. It's life. Now, when we can travel to New York City again without these restrictions, what is a hidden gem of a restaurant that you can recommend for us? Hidden gem of a restaurant. Just something that maybe just the locals know about, you know? Oh, yes, there's one in the East Village and I can't remember the name, but I can't tell you that one. It's fantastic. But <laughs> La Conda Verde is one of my favourite. It's an Italian restaurant in Tribeca. Oh, I wish I could remember this one in the East Village. It's like you're back in Paris in the 1920s. I'll have to get back to you. We'll, come, we'll come back to um, I'll do anything that's Japanese and there's so many great Japanese restaurants all over town. But what's great about New York is, like, you know, you go, you want Korean food, you go to Koreatown, you really literally feel like you're in Seoul. Or you've got Chinatown or you've got Japantown, Little Italy. You have the full experience. Yeah. And when you come back to Sydney, you go to Bill's, don't you? I love my bills. I, do you know how long Corn I've been trying to Bill Granger? No, they're a little bit too much. They're ricotta hotcakes. Oh, yes. <laughs> my kids love the corn fritters, but I have been trying to talk Bill Granger into opening up in New York for years. Oh, I think he's genius. I love Bill Granger. And he's, he's all over the world. I mean, it's extraordinary. He's got three, I think, in London, five in Japan. He's everywhere. Yeah. No, it's good Australian fare, that's for sure. Now, apart from the well-trodden tourist stops in New York, where do you take family and friends when they come and visit, when they're in town? A lot of people come at Christmas time, so we go, you know, skating at Rockefeller Centre. We go up to the top of uh, 30 Rock because uh, you don't have to go to the Empire State Building because there's always a queue, so you go up there and just have a drink and you can see the whole city. You know, Central Park, just to walk through the Lower East Side, it's like that's the thing about New York. You don't really have to go somewhere. Just walking in the city is showbiz. You know, there's a guy playing the bagpipes and then there's someone hopping on one leg with a purple hat. It's like the, everyone's interesting, infinitely interesting. There's so many characters in the street. So you don't really have to go to a place, just walk around. And I always love with New York, you set out for the day, you don't have any plans, and then at the end of that day you go, wow. What happened? You just, it just happens. 
That is such a brilliant description. And I remember my first visit, I couldn't believe how this heaving metropolis had all these tiny little communities and little neighbourhoods. I just, I wasn't expecting that. But New York's packed with that, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And everyone thinks it's a big city, which it is. But like I'm in the West Village, I know my butcher, my baker, my candlestick maker, it's cobblestones, I walk down the street. We all know each other, the dog walkers. So it feels very villagey. But you're in one of the biggest metropolises in the world. Yeah, it's a fascinating city. Where's next on your travel list, again, once restrictions are lifted? Is there a particular place that you've got? Yes. Well, before this all happened, we said to the kids, everyone gets to pick a place that they really want to go to. On my list is Sweden. I've never been to Sweden. And I would like to go to Tibet and Bhutan. I think the kids have chosen Iceland and I'm not sure where else everyone Gee, wants. nothing's <laughs> nothing standard about those destinations. <laughs> <laughs> well, why not? They're there. It's like they just sound interesting to me. Exactly. I can't imagine what they're like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Iceland. Wow. Well, good luck with that. Who knows when that's going to happen, but we look forward to yeah. hearing about your travel adventures. One thing I've really missed during COVID is being able to go to the movies. I don't know if you're able to do that yet in New York. No. So obviously we've got access to streaming services, but nothing beats going to the cinema and and seeing something on the big screen. Are there any impressive upcoming movies that you know about that we should keep an eye out for? Absolutely. Reminiscence, starring none other than Hugh Jackman. Yes. Uh, (laughs) So that's coming out. Remind us what that's about. Well, it's sort of like a science fiction love story. It's very moody. Yeah, sort of film noir. But, yeah, but I don't know if these are all going to get theatrical releases. I mean, Hugh is supposed to be starting on Broadway now, but who knows when that comes because Broadway is so much about tourism and I don't know who's coming to sit in a crowded theatre from somewhere else. So, And the movie theatres, I don't know. I think we have, we're just all Netflixing at the moment and we've been watching a lot of great films. We just binge-watched the whole of Ozark, which oh, I loved. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, that's had a huge take up here as well. So what is Hugh doing, apart from helping you set up your computer at the beginning of this interview? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're going to laugh, but he's big baker. This is his new passion. I love it. Yeah, at first he he bakes literally every day. And now whenever we go to someone's place for dinner, he takes one of his special seed breads. There's no flour. It's extremely healthy. But he's created a bread for me, which has got two net carbs, and it's just sensational. So it's like... I get to have bread and it's legal. Wow. So baking, <laughs> Hugh Jackman. I love it. Yeah, he's the baker. I love it. And I believe he's quite prone to doing the odd jigsaw puzzle. He loves a jigsaw puzzle. Mm. See, I think we all have different skills the way our brain works. I just look at that and just go, I don't get it. I, all those bits and pieces, I just don't get it. I couldn't even know where to begin. I've never been a jigsawer. No. Well, I've done them during COVID and I've loved them as much as I've hated them. You like them. it? Oh, well, I ha- it's, oh. it's good for me because I have to be patient and patience isn't something yeah, I have see, a I've lot of. None of that. Yeah. No, me either. <laughs> no. No, no. I finish these podcasts by asking, when are you at your happiest? When I'm in the present moment. Very wabi-sabi. Very wabi-sabi. That is absolute truth. And that could be doing the dishes if I'm present there then I'm happiest. It's usually when I'm also being creative. If I'm being creative, that's my sweet spot. Deborah Lee Finesse, you are an absolute delight. You're a dynamo. 
It has been a joy chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Georgie. Lots of love and hope to see you back here soon. You too, and I hope you get to the movies sometime soon. I miss the chop tops. Thank you for listening. Drive is a future women podcast made in partnership with Uber Eats and it's produced by Fancy Films. Make sure you subscribe so you do not miss an episode and we would love it if you could rate and review because that really helps people to find us. I'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Bye for now.